shoulder. It is Thursday, February the 8th, and I need you to cast your mind back four years ago to the day since Harry and Meghan stepped back as senior royals. The media storm that caused it was pre-COVID. Times are so different. Harry is in the UK visiting his father at the moment, King Charles, following his recent cancer diagnosis, and that is something that we're going to be talking about soon. Let's get on with it, shall we? Kelda, this is Newsable. I'm Jess, in for Immo today, and this is what's worth talking about. Could this week spell the end of Trump's run to be re-elected as US president? The climate activist suing seven of the country's biggest polluters joins us to explain why and what King Charles's health battle means for us here in New Zealand. Plus, for kids' super yachts, apparently we're in our super submarine era. Oh my what is the world coming to? All that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. He may still be the front runner for the Republican nomination, but the legal woes of Donald Trump continue to unfold. The latest decision involves claims of presidential immunity, but we are also on the verge of a decision about whether Trump is even eligible to stand for president. And that's not to mention the other cases, such as the mishandling of classified information. So to tell us more about the decisions just out, here's Logan Church from One News, the US correspondent. Kia ora, Logan. Thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks, Jess. Yes, it's a wild time here. <laughs> Absolutely wild. I bet it is. So there's just so many court cases swirling around. Can you please explain to us what is the Supreme Court decision due out shortly over Trump and presidential elections? Yeah, so a little bit later this week, the US Supreme Court is about to hear arguments on an appeal on a landmark decision from the top court from the state of Colorado. Now, in that state, it was successfully argued that Donald Trump is ineligible to be on the state's primary election ballot. Now, those are when Republicans and Democrats decide who they want their party's presidential nominee to be. Now, the reason why is a little section in the 14th Amendment to the US Constitution, in which it states that someone cannot hold a public office like the presidency if they were involved in inciting an insurrection. And now, what that's referring to in the uh, in the context of this case uh, is the events of January 6, 2021, after Donald Trump had clearly lost the election, but at a huge rally with his supporters on the big lawn outside the uh, White House, he said, we will never give up, never surrender. And then after that, what can only be described as a horde of his followers descended on the state capitol and ransacked the building in an attempt to try and stop the official votes from being verified. Now, what makes this all really super interesting is this part of the Constitution was written as a result of the American Civil War, where insurrection was very much on the minds of lawmakers who were trying to stop former members of the Confederacy from running for Congress. Now, the Civil War finished up in the late 1800s, 1865, if I recall correctly. And you might have observed that there hasn't been any mass attempts at an insurrection since, at any large scale at least. And also, that rule has never been used to stop someone from running for president before. So now, if Donald Trump ultimately loses and the Supreme Court and his name can't be on the Colorado primary ballots, then, well, it won't. That's not actually a big loss for Donald Trump in terms of Colorado. He doesn't actually need the state to win the national election. But what it does do is it sets a very problematic precedent for the former president that other states could follow this is all happening on a very tight timeline we are already in primary election season and super mm. tuesday where the greatest number of states hold primary elections well that's almost exactly a month away now 
So that was that one ruling. There was also another ruling out in the last couple of days. This is from the Court of Appeal that states Trump does not have presidential immunity, which means he can be prosecuted on those charges of plotting to overturn the 2020 result, which is what we've been talking about. So what happens in regards to that now? Yeah, so that, that's also linked to January 6th, the, uh, the capital riots, but a totally different case. So in that, Donald Trump's facing felony charges relating to his role in alleged attempts to overturn the election results that Joe Biden won. Now, one of Donald Trump's main elements of defense, one of his main points that he's been saying is that he claims that any decision he may or may not have made uh, would have been covered at the time by presidential immunity and that he cannot be charged with crimes relating to his time in the presidency. However, today, a federal appeals court ruled that actually, no, he wasn't covered by that. And it was actually a pretty scathing and unanimous judgment. And if I can sum it up in a sentence, it would basically pointed out that it would be totally constitutionally inconsistent to have someone who, as president, must execute the laws of the land, but also be the only single individual in that land not bound by them. Americans themselves, do they want clarity on this, uh, we hear so much about how divided the country is anyway along those partisan lines. So do these judgments matter from a voter perspective, do you think? Do people care about them? Well, on the case that we were just talking about, a recent poll from CNN found that the majority of Americans wanted that case resolved before the next election. And you can imagine why um, most Americans would want that. But then you have to ask, does any of this, do any of these cases, do any of the 91 criminal charges that Donald Trump's currently facing, do any of them actually affect his election chances? And the answer right now, frankly, is not really. A, a recent poll that came out from Yahoo Nuga found that more than half, so 53% of people say that if Donald Trump is convicted of a serious crime, he should not be allowed to serve as president again. So that means that almost half effectively don't have that view. And that's across all of the voting uh, spectrum. Now, interestingly, if you, in that same poll, if you look at only Republicans, so Donald Trump's party, 72% say that any conviction against Donald Trump would be, and I quote, an unfair outcome meant to damage him politically. So I think that gives you a really interesting insight to the current state of play inside the United States right now. So we're really in an unprecedented time. This is a big country with big problems that is incredibly divided. And I think even in the run up to the election before anyone's elected, things are going to get very bitter, very serious, and in many ways, very volatile. Logan Church, One News' US correspondent. Thank you so much for your insight. All good. Thank you so much. Just before we talk climate action, remember, if you do ever want to get in touch, you can always flick us an email, newsable at stuff.co.nz. To make sure you get all the latest newsable news, make sure you're following NZ Stuff on TikTok and Instagram too. Seven of the country's highest polluters are heading to court after our Supreme Court ruled a climate activist can sue them for their contributions to climate change. Mike Smith has been battling for five years to have his arguments heard in front of a judge. And now, Fonterra, Z Energy, Genesis, BT Mining, NZ Steel, Dairy Holdings and oil importer Channel Infrastructure will have to front up and, as the Supreme Court's justices concluded, take responsibility for their contributions to a widespread problem. To tell us where to from here is Mike Smith himself. Kia ora, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on the show. What was it that inspired you to take this course of action? 
Well, I don't know if it was inspiration so much as desperation, to tell the honest truth. You know, we just, this is so much inertia politically, inertia in the international scene, seen by the um, climate change is running away at speed and at scale, and we just needed to do something to arrest the um, progress of uh, dangerous emissions. And so we looked, you know, to the court because... Um, I guess the political inertia is impacted by the lobbyists, whether or not they're farmers or whether or not they're oil companies, but they get in the air of the governments and they get them to um, soften their approach. That's one of the horns of the dilemma that the government faces. The other horn of that dilemma is public um, pushback and, and that people don't like the idea of um, losing any benefits or our lavish lifestyles that we're able to live these days. And so they don't want to see the type of um, action that's required. And we thought in the face of that, we can't rely on the politicians to do what's necessary. We might have to go to the courts and ask them for enforceable orders uh, to you know, instruct um, polluting companies to uh, reduce their emissions. Why these seven in particular? Well, they represent the highest um, emitting sectors of our economy. And uh, if you look at the breakdown um, of who's pushing out the most emissions into the atmosphere, in our country, just under 50% is produced by the uh, agricultural industry, primarily um, far dairy farmers. And so um, while you could try and sue um, dairy farmers one, one at a time, or collectively as a group, we thought it was better that we, um, we take the action against their cooperative um, uh, producer, which is Fonterra. Yeah, so it's just based upon the rate of emissions from those various sectors. And they're the, those seven are the top polluters. What would your ideal outcome be from all this? Is it a monetary figure? Is it them taking some changes to their business model? No, we're not in it for the money. And we've said that, you know, people assume that when you see somebody, you're seeing them for money. We're seeing them for action. So what's in it for us is the... Uh, safety for our children and grandchildren and the unborn generations of New Zealanders and, in fact, people around the planet. So do you see the court kind of instructing the those big seven, for instance, to reduce their emissions by a certain amount? Is that kind of the judgment that you'd hope for? Yeah, well, so we want some um, compliance orders and some way of enforcing that compliance. Otherwise, what we're likely to get is what we've already seen already is, you know, they'll paint some of their cars green or... You know, just do some kind of soft uh, PR exercise or they'll lobby the government to kick it down the road like they have done for the last 20, 30 years. You know, they've just got to grow up and realise uh, what's going on. I mean, they know what's going mm. on, so they've just got to lean into the solutions. I mean, the choice is simple. It sounds like a cliche. It's either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And they are a huge part of the problem. They are the problem. Mm. It's what we need them to be is the solution. And kind of a big win in itself, the Supreme Court allowing this case. Do you think the case itself is winnable? Well, I'd like to think so. You know, everything has its time and place. The courts tend to reflect the morality of society at any given moment. And so I think that we're moving to a time now where uh, climate responsibility is, you know, embedded in the psyche of, um, of our people. And I think the courts will hopefully reflect that. They've done so in the past over things like Indigenous rights, they've done so things like uh, women's rights, they've done so to things like um, gay rights, for example. You know, that um, is a period in history where they won't go near any of that, but then when the social uh, fabric 
is mature enough and grown up enough to um, to address these issues and find a way forward, all the courts usually reflect that. Kia ora Mike. Mike Smith there, who is taking seven of the country's biggest polluters to court. Very welcome, Wes. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your, your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I am still going to reveal all about the latest super submarines. Think, you know, super yacht, but the, the submarine version, I too. Look, if you're struggling with this, I'm struggling too. But as always, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform because that way when you're in your super submarine you'll still be able to listen to newsable to even further that luxury experience so just nine months since his coronation and king charles's cancer diagnosis will make people think about what happens if he becomes unable to fulfill his constitutional duties buckingham palace has announced he will continue performing his official paperwork and his weekly meetings with the prime minister throughout his treatment but what happens if he does become seriously ill and can't work here to explain is professor andrew geddes from otago university kia ora andrew thank you so much for joining us Can you talk us through the options here if the king is out of action? Sure. So at the moment, uh, King Charles has withdrawn from the kind of public-facing roles of the monarch. So he's delegated those down to Camilla. So you go into all the openings, meeting with all the sort of, you know, uh, army folk, the the sort of thing the king would normally do day to day. But he's still carrying out his kind of formal official legal duties, the things that the law says that only the sovereign can do. Now, if you know, God forbid, uh, his condition was to worsen and he was unable to carry out those sort of behind the scenes, less public, uh, but legally required functions. If it's only a temporary incapacity, the British can appoint what are called councillors of state. In other words, other royals who step in and do that for him on a temporary basis. Now that wouldn't actually affect New Zealand because in New Zealand, all of these sovereigns functions are carried out by our governor general. So if there was to be a temporary uh, replacement with, you know, councillors of state, then that wouldn't affect New Zealand in any way, shape or form. The next step up, of course, is if things get really bad and it's not just a temporary problem. uh, So it's not just, you know, one doesn't like to speculate, Mm -hmm. but, you know, chemo treatment that might last a month or so, but something that's much, you know, longer term. It looks like he's just not going to be able to be king at any point. The British have a a kind of an internal law that says if that happens, the British can, through their own mechanisms, appoint a regent to act in the king's role. That would be William. He'd basically step up and start doing the king's job. 
That's governed by a 1937 British Act of Parliament. They passed it at the time of Edward VIII. The British, uh, through their own processes, would appoint William as regent. Mm-hmm. And under our law, under the Constitution Act, that regent would then take on the role of the sovereign for New Zealand. So the British law would automatically kick over William to us as our new kind of ruler. Now, you mentioned before about councillors of state and then Prince William there as as regent. Who are the other councillors of state, if there are any, that might need to step up in the king's absence? So uh, I think there's seven in total. William is one of them. Uh, Camilla is one. Somewhat awkwardly, Prince Andrew and Prince Harry are both councillors of state, but it's unlikely they would be called on to act, given uh, the relations within the royal family. And then there's a couple of others... Interesting stuff. And so has this ever happened before? Have, I mean, I know the Queen's father had cancer. Was this ever necessary uh, during his treatment? And I think he, he did eventually succumb to lung cancer in the end. Yeah, I mean, we can actually go more recently uh, because, of course, the Queen herself, towards right. the end of reign, uh, actually appointed councillors to act for her on a number of occasions, such as, you know, the state opening of Parliament. Right. Why did the sovereign attend? But, you know, unfortunately, given her condition, she couldn't do so personally. So she appointed Charles to be her counsellor to turn up kind of in her place. There was no need to appoint a regent because she was able right through to uh, her passing, still carry out the, you know, the, the uh, signing of bills into law, et cetera, et cetera. What it would take for a regent to be appointed, because basically by appointing a regent, you're saying, look, we don't think this person's going to get better. You know, yeah. we're, we're ending over the role of king to someone else, even though they remain king in name, all their functions hand over to someone else. What it would take for that to happen isn't actually specified in law. It's up to, there's again about five individuals in the United Kingdom who can make the call as to whether they think the king has reached that stage. Um, I would imagine, of course, given that Charles has waited for so long to get into this role, he's not going to want to give it up. So that would be a very big call to make. That's Professor Andrew Geddes. Thank you so much for your thoughts on that. Pleasure. Okay, so I'm going to need you to forget about super yachts because there is a new glam for ocean travel and it is the super submarine. Now look, I know, I know when I say super submarine, well I say submarine, you probably think about metal ladders and cramped corridors and tiny rooms and bunk beds, but... Please, put that all from your mind because the world's first super sub features, and I'm not joking, a swimming pool, a wine cellar, a cinema. It can hold 20 passengers underwater for four weeks. Four weeks, can you imagine that? But the small problem here is that it will set you back $2 billion. According to the UK's Daily Mail, Migaloo 5 is made by an Austrian design firm that describes the super sub as the future of yachting. I'm not sure how that can be because it's not, you know, actually a yacht. But anyway, according to the firm's CEO, their target clients are visionary billionaires with or without existing super yacht experience who have extraordinary demands for exclusivity and safety. 
I don't know about safety in submarines. They might want to check the news last year. Anyway, and if you, like me, are wondering how this all works, those swimming pools, for example, well, the pools are on either side of the submarine and they extend out over the water while the sub is still on the surface. It's kind of like something from Thunderbirds, this. These pools can then slot back into the body of the vessel prior to its descent. Imagine that. So there you have it. If there are any, you know, visionary billionaires out there listening to Newable and you're tempted, please get in contact. Please get in contact with me firstly because, I mean, I would love to pay a visit when it's all ready. Anyway, that is Musical for today. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Jessica McCarthy and we'll catch you tomorrow. Was this episode of Newsable usable? Then back NZ News by making a financial contribution at stuff.co.nz support. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.